Well, this morning, as Cheryl's mentioned, we're beginning a new series that will take us through most of the way till Easter. And we're looking at the seven signs in John's Gospel. And this morning, of course, we're starting with the the first of those signs when uh, Jesus changed water into wine. Now, most of you will be aware, I think, that the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus come in four forms. We have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And the first three of those, Matthew, Mark and Luke, deal with fairly similar material. There's some differences at the beginning and there's some differences at the end in which parts of the birth and the passion narratives they choose to include or not to include. But most of the bulk of what's in the middle um, is quite similar. You're just getting fine details uh, of difference in the, in the different accounts. John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, stands apart from all of the others in many ways. It has a very different style to it. It has quite a different structure to it. And it also has quite a different chronology to it. And much of what is prominent in those synoptic accounts, the the miracles, um, they're much less pronounced in John's Gospel. There are far fewer healing miracles and uh, the casting out of demons, which is a feature of Jesus' healing ministry in the synoptic Gospels, doesn't even get a mention in John's Gospel. John has different priorities that he's writing towards. And he tells us what those priorities are towards the end of the gospel. We get a little summary statement of what his priorities are and what are his reasons for writing. He admits, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his reason for writing and he has chosen and structured his material very carefully to suit that purpose. He's been very selective about what he has included in this gospel. He records for us only seven miracles. The synoptics have many, many more. And his gospel is structured in two parts. And we'll come to that a bit later. The miracles within the gospel he calls signs. And signs are a good way of thinking about them because signs tell us important things that we need to know. We're all familiar with signs. We use them every day and they tell us important details that we need to know. In the case of this gospel, they are telling us things that will help us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so this is what we're going to spend the next seven weeks exploring the details of each of these signs and what it is that they are pointing to or revealing to us about this Messiah Jesus. So as I mentioned, the Gospel of John is traditionally considered in two main parts. Much of the first part of the Gospel 
is taken up with what we call the book of signs. And they are the seven that we're going to work through in this series. Much of the second part of the gospel is known as the book of glory. And that details the passion narrative. All of the things that happened immediately in the lead up to Jesus' death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and those appearances that happened to his disciples after his resurrection. These two books are sandwiched between a prologue, which is a theologically really rich part of this gospel, and most of you would be familiar with it. In the beginning was the Word, da -da 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 -da. the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he revealed the Father to us. So John sets the gospel up with this prologue, and then at the other end of the sandwich we have an epilogue, which is believed to probably be a later addition uh, to the gospel. It details some more of those post-resurrection appearances and also um, the account of when Jesus reinstated Peter, who had three times denied him. So we've got a prologue, an epilogue, and the meat in the sandwich are these two books, the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory, and it's this Book of Signs that we're going to focus on for the next seven weeks. So let's turn to the first of those signs in John's Gospel. We're looking at John chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11 together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, although the servants who'd drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, sometimes when reading the signs, the message that is being communicated with a face value reading is immediately obvious to everyone. You know, wrong way, go back, or no entry. Unless you can't read English, you're not going to mistake what that sign is actually trying to tell you. It says exactly what it means. And that face value reading is all you need to know from that sign. 
And my husband has a friend who typifies probably the, the Aussie bloke. He was not a churchgoer, but he did go to a Catholic school. He was raised through a Catholic school, through that system. And so he was exposed there to the scriptures. To him, this story of Jesus cha changing water into wine was the greatest story ever told. It was the very best part of the Bible to him because it presented to him a Jesus who was relatable, a Jesus who people wanted to hang around with and invite to their parties, and a Jesus who would provide for them in their hour of need at their parties. This was not a Jesus who was standing off to the side judging. This was Jesus who was involved in their celebrations. And he liked this story about Jesus so much that when it came to his own wedding, this is the reading that he wanted to have at his wedding. <laughs> and it was explained to him that that is not the typical kind of reading that people go for at their wedding. Mostly it's something about love or commitment. He didn't care. He had this reading at his wedding. Now he wasn't wrong in his understanding of this passage. It does indeed give us a glimpse into the character of Jesus. It does tell us what he was like. He wasn't standing off to the side judging people. He was involved in their celebrations. He was involved in their lives. He had friends and clearly his friends wanted him present at their celebrations. He was good company. And yes, he provided plenty of wine for them at their celebrations when they needed it. But that's only one way to read this sign. That's the face value reading of this sign. Sometimes there can be more to a sign than perhaps first meets the eye. You know, the sign up there on the left, what's it telling you? Watch for robotic men chasing after riderless bikes. That's one way of reading that sign. The sign in the middle, I admit I had no idea what that sign meant when I first saw it driving along the road in uh, Queensland, northern Queensland. I thought it had something to do with going over a cliff because the train had clearly left the tracks and the, the rider of the bike was heading straight over the cliff. Anyone who's travelled a lot in northern Queensland will know that that is a sign warning you that you are in a sugarcane area. And in sugarcane areas they have cane trains. And where there's trains, there's tracks. And where there's tracks, bicycle tyres can get stuck in them. I'm still not really sure how this sign works because surely a track going across the road is not running in the same direction as your bicycle tyre and you'd have to be riding in a very funny way to get your tyre stuck in it, but there's the sign. And as for the sign on the right, I still have no idea what that sign means. Maybe, you know, it's a lot of fun riding your motorbike over rainbows. I don't know. Maybe the only thing I can think of is that rainbow is not meant to be a rainbow. It's meant to be a bend in a road or a hill on a road and the driver's not having fun, he's about to fall off. I don't know. The point is, there's often more than one way to read a sign. 
and that's certainly true for our sign for today. On face value, the Gospel writer here has simply recorded this first amazing miracle of Jesus that happened at a wedding when they happened to run out of wine. But if you look a little more carefully, you will find that there is plenty more to see here. This sign is pointing way beyond itself. Now the Gospel writer here begins this little account with a little marker which is characteristic of John's Gospel. You'll find these little markers all the way through. And he says here, on the third day. Now it doesn't seem like much and we skipped over it fairly quickly in the introduction to that reading on the third day, da 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 da, something happened and we're very eager to get to what happened on the third day. We need to stop and drink in those words. On the third day, is there anything there? This gospel writer picks his words very carefully. So we need to stop and we need to ponder them. Following that prologue in this gospel, there is an interaction between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. After that, the next three sections all begin with one of those characteristic little markers. They all begin the next day. So chapter 129, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Chapter 135, the next day, John was there again with the disciples. Then chapter 143, the next day, Jesus decided to leave Galilee. Now Jesus, uh, the gospel writer, gives no explanation what this third day is counted from. Is it the third day from a Sabbath? Is it third day from the last next day, which he's given us three of? If it is, why not simply say so? Why not say two days later or on the day after the Sabbath? The writer here has chosen to say on the third day. Nowhere else in that gospel does he use that marker on the third day, just here. Nowhere else that I could find anyway. And nowhere else in any of the gospels does the third day refer to anything else except to the resurrection of Jesus. So here in these first three words of this little account, already we're being prompted to look at what this sign is pointing towards on the third day. Now this particular third day is a day of great rejoicing and great celebration because it is a wedding day in Cana of Galilee. And weddings back then weren't that much different from weddings today. They're at times of great celebration. Jesus' ministry is about to commence and he knows the pain and the hardship that will lie before him. He's not long come through a period of intense personal conflict during his temptation in the desert. He's only just called his disciples. So you could say he had a lot going on in his mind at that time. And yet here he is enjoying the party and taking time to 
celebrate with this country couple from Cana in Galilee. And that alone tells us plenty about him. And his disciples was there too, and his mother was there as well, and everyone's enjoying the celebrations when someone realises that the wine has run out. Now, weddings were supposed to be the very best of celebrations. They still are today. And so to run out of wine and to be unable to provide for your guests was a social disgrace, something that could well bring shame on this newly married couple for many, many years to come. Jesus' mother makes him aware. And his reply kind of seems a bit harsh to us. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus doesn't address her as mother, as we might expect him to do. He doesn't say, oh, come on, mum, you know that my hour has not yet come. He calls her woman. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, here at the beginning of his ministry, this relationship that he has with Mary, by necessity, has to change. He is no longer primarily the son of Mary. He is the son of God. And it will be the Father's will that he must do. Mary can't be presuming upon him anymore as his mother. And so in addressing her here as woman rather than as mother or some other term of endearment, Jesus is just using the ordinary term that was used when speaking of females at that time. Maybe like we would use ma'am or lady or something like that. He'll use it again when he looks at her tenderly from the cross and entrusts her care to one of the disciples. This is not a disparaging term. And he will use it other times to commend other women for their faith. This word here represents a transition, a transition to another time, to another part of his ministry. Represents a new beginning. My hour has not yet come, he says. Perhaps knowing about his baptism and what had happened there and knowing about his temptation and what had happened to Jesus there, perhaps seeing him gather disciples towards him, Mary was clued in to the fact that something was about to happen, that Jesus' ministry was about to begin. And on face value, that's what this comment appears to be like about, my hour has not yet come. But elsewhere in John's Gospel, those words, my hour, on the lips of Jesus refer to only one thing. It refers to his death and resurrection. And so here again, the writer of this gospel is giving us 
a very obvious clue that this particular sign points to something far beyond itself, something far greater. What comes next is the miracle itself, that changing of water into wine. And what we need to notice here is how much detail is given in the description of this account. We're told the jars were stone. We're told that there were six of them. We're told that they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. And we're told what large volumes, 20 or 30 gallons each, they held. Now, when a writer who is as careful in choosing his words as this writer is, gives you that amount of detail, I think it's safe to assume that it's provided for a reason. This is something that we need to know and take notice of. Stone jars, very hard to make. They had to be cut from a single piece of stone. You needed specialised equipment to do that work. So they were expensive. But unlike the much, much cheaper clay jars, stone jars were not subject to the laws of purification. So if they came in contact with something that was unclean, a clay jar had to be smashed to pieces. A stone jar did not. So we know that this is a household that was concerned with purity. The jars, we're told, were of a kind used for ceremonial washing. So we know that this was a household very concerned with keeping of the law. We're told that the jars each held 20 or 30 gallons. Well, that's between 75 and 115 litres in today's measurements. These were big jars and there were six of them. That is a lot of water and a lot of wine because we're told they were filled right to the brim. So Jesus here takes something that was meant for ceremonial washing under the law of Moses and he transforms it into wine for this happiest of celebratory occasions. These stone jars filled with water remind us of the old covenant, the covenant that God had with his people under the law. And Jesus took them and he transformed them. Notice he didn't replace them doesn't get rid of the jars and change them into something else or replace them with something else. He doesn't take anything from them. He's very careful that they fill the jars to the brim. He's not adding anything here. It's not a magic trick. And he's not taking it away and replacing it with something else. He's transforming what is already there. And he would transform it into something new and something better. And he would do it on this greatest day of joy and celebration. Wine in the Old Testament is used as an image of blessing to come under the new covenant. Prophet Joel speaks about the mountains dripping with new wine. And Jesus would later make wine and use wine as a lasting reminder for us of the new covenant in his blood. And we remember that every time we come and share together around the communion table. 
He used the words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Only one time earlier was water miraculously turned red. And this is where our reading comes in from the Old Testament. Cheryl read that account to us earlier. God performed miraculous signs in Egypt through Moses in response to Pharaoh's refusal to let God's people go, to let them go and worship him. And the Nile River ran red with blood. The fish died, the water stunk, and Egypt's source of life became a thing of death. It was a clear sign that the law would bring death. This new sign required no stick or anything else to bring it about. Jesus simply exercised his divine will and it was done and there was much joy and celebrating. It was given in abundance. Those jars were filled to the brim. So that was between 450 and 700 litres of water that was transformed into wine. Way more than they could have needed for that celebration. It was given freely and it was given to people who probably didn't really deserve it. For whatever reason, these hosts had been unable to provide for their own guests. Perhaps it was bad planning. Perhaps it was a lack of resources to enable them to do that. Whatever the reason, Jesus provides in abundance to fill for their needs. When we consider here that wine is the image that Jesus has chosen for us forever to be a reminder of his blood, we can see the contrast between these two miracles. The first blood was a sign that points to death under the law, but the second points to abundant life through the new covenant and the shed blood of Christ. As we read in the prologue to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 17, he sets this up for us when he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So the wine is poured, it's given to the master of the banquet to taste. He didn't know where it would come from. He knew only that it was good. It was really good. In fact, it was the best wine of the night. There was nothing deficient about the wine they'd had before. It was probably very good wine. But this was a step above. This was the best wine of the night. And it was surprising because nobody does that. They serve the best wine first. And then when people don't care anymore, out comes the bad stuff. But here, Jesus had saved the best for last. This first sign doesn't just tell us a bit about the type of person Jesus was. It points to the mighty work of transformation that he would do at the cross. There, the old covenant would be transformed into the new covenant of grace. And there, even sinners like you and me, destined for death, deserving of death, could be transformed into saints 
for eternal life. That is what this sign is pointing to. There is such great depth in it. And the very fact that this whole thing took place at a wedding feast reminds us of that great wedding banquet to come when the church, the bride of Christ, is presented uh, to him. And no one, I think, can express this better than what Spurgeon said, so I'm just going to read his words there. I can conceive you, brethren, in the very last moment of your life, or rather in the first moment of your life, saying, he's kept the best wine until now. When you begin to see him face to face, when you enter into that closest fellowship with nothing to disturb or distract you, then you shall say, the best wine is kept until now. So with this first miracle then, Jesus sets himself firmly on that path to my hour. From here on in, he's headed to the cross. With his first miracle, he reveals his reason for coming and the relationship between the old covenant and what it will be under the new. With this first miracle, we also know that the best is yet to come. With this first miracle, he revealed his glory and the gospel writer records and the disciples put their faith in him or his disciples believed in him. Now that doesn't mean that they had no faith or they didn't believe in him before. They were his disciples after all. They'd left their life's work to come and follow him. They had faith. And this word that is translated here as in and his disciples believed in him, this word literally means toward or into. They believed toward him or they believed into him. They went deeper in their faith. And there are times in our lives as well when God chooses to take us deeper, to reveal more of himself to us as he did to his disciples in this first miracle. Sometimes he does it in a miraculous way. Sometimes he does it by revealing his word anew to us. And we need to hold on to those times and to allow them to take us deeper. They're precious but so easily we get distracted. And before long we start to wonder, did that really happen? And we begin to doubt. I often wonder how much the disciples really understood of this miracle as it was happening and of, of so many other things in the Bible as, as they happened before their very eyes. Did they only see the miracle? Did they see that transforming power of Jesus displayed over these elements and that made them put their faith in him? Or did they understand or was it revealed to them right away that this sign was really pointing way beyond itself? Or did they maybe come to that more gradually as they saw other things unfold before them, as they saw Jesus stand there with the cup in his hand saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood? Then did the penny drop about this miracle at Cana? However it happened, 
it is clear that by the time this gospel was written, and this is believed to be the last of the four that was written, that reflection had happened. And I have no doubt that the writer of this gospel selected his words very carefully that we too might understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that by believing in him, we might have new life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth that is revealed to us here in your word. We weren't there, we didn't attend that wedding in Cana. And so we thank you for those who were and who related the story and the account of what happened. We thank you for those who wrote it down, that we too might know and be part of your great plan. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving the best until last. Thank you for pouring out your grace so abundantly and so freely to us. We love you, Lord. Amen.